0: Well, good morning. Merry Christmas. You, didn't they do a beautiful job with the stage? They really, yeah, absolutely. You. Did, have, you, have you heard the rumors? I don't know if you've heard the rumors, but I've been hearing through the grapevine that believe it or not, Santa Claus attends our church. Did you know that? He once was the chair fairy, but he's been exalted to—he's been exalted to Santa Claus. Believe it or not, Arnie Wannell is the real Santa. He is going to be our Kent City Santa Claus this year, and if, if you want any gifts, you know who to go to. But he does have a list, so be very careful, Arnie. We're excited for your new—your new promotion. It's exciting. It is exciting. It's funny, uh, two weeks ago I was talking to about 20 different pastors and they were talking about the upcoming Christmas season. And the pastor said, you know, I can't stand Christmas. I, I really don't like it. And I said, why? And they said, because you always have to come up with some new way to talk about the Christmas story. Everybody knows that it's old hat. And I said, you know, I really, I like Christmas. I, I like talking about the coming of Christ. It's kind of exciting to me. It's, it's our central message. And, I, and for me, people come back; they, they want to hear them again. And, and, and when, you, when you really study the story of Christmas, it puts everything in perspective. It really does. And so Jared and I have been talking about what do we want as our theme. And so the theme for the next three weeks is going to be a Trinitarian Christmas. That's why we have symbol of the Trinity up there. The Trinity's on your on your. Programs. you guys ever notice we had a Trinity symbol in our pulpit? Isn't that kind of nice? Pete Braxton did that. It's beautiful. And we're going to talk about what the Trinity is and how he has to play in it. But before we do, let's pray and then we'll open up to Psalm chapter 2. Let's pray. Lord, I need your help today. I really do. I want. I want to present this in a way that's appealing, but also that causes us to Wonder And that's a hard thing to do. I, I really want people to, in a way, come back to what Christian, uh, Christmas really, really means. And I, I don't just mean that in a seasonal way, God. I mean that in a way that this is serious business. It's very serious. It's not uh, nostalgia. It's not warm feelings. It's, it's essential to our salvation. I pray that people see that. I pray that the scriptures would be clear, that as I present them, they'll be understood, because there's some difficult parts here, God. And thirdly, I pray for the listeners. Father, my, I, my request is that people come and they don't come to see a performance. Please let them come to hear from you. That we're here at church, we're here to learn from you and leave as different people Father, I pray you'd encourage those people that are hurting today. Father, that you'd really encourage them. I pray for those that are far away from you. You draw them close. I pray for the people that mock you. And I know there's some in in this sanctuary that mock you. I pray that, God, you'd provoke them to realize they're dealing with a very serious God. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Psalm chapter 2, if you could. And we're going to use this as our platform for the next three weeks. Psalm 2 is not really a Christmas passage. But you're going to see that from God's perspective, it is. It begins by saying in Psalm 2, verse 1, Why do the nations rage? And the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me. And I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. If you look in verse 7, this is from the perspective of Almighty God, from the Father. And he says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So today we're going to look at this chapter from the Father's perspective. That's why it's called the Father and His Decree, a Trinitarian Christmas. It's funny, if you would ask people about Christmas, I think the human perspective of Christmas starts at the manger. We start with a little baby born. And to us, Christmas is a lot of things, but usually it's nice things. Usually Christmas has this atmosphere of, oh, isn't that sweet? Mary has a sweet little baby born as a gift to us. And it's a great thing, and it's a nice thing. And I think in our mind, we really do believe some little boy came with a drum and played before him and cried while the shepherds you know they gazed in wonder and the kind of light happened and they all cried at the same time like I think we start there as human beings but God does not start at the manger he doesn't start there I believe when it comes to the Christmas story God starts in verse one of psalm two Instead of being a nice place, it starts in war, in battle. Look at how Psalm 1 begins. I mean, Psalm 2, verse 1 begins. The writer asks, Why do the nations rage? When God looks down on the earth, there's something wrong. There's really something wrong with the earth. You can see it all the way back in Genesis, right before the flood came. God looked on mankind, and every intention and thought in man was wicked and violent. Why do, why does a couple, with a six-month-old baby, shoot 14 people? Why, right now, in Thailand, are little girls aged four, five, six, seven be sold into sexual slavery? Why do the nations rage? Why in some homes in our community, a husband and wife can't even talk? Can't even speak to each other. Moms and sons sometimes just fight and argue. Why do the nations rage? What is wrong? What is going on in this world? And I think that's where God starts. He looks down on the world and he says, there is something wrong. And he tells us what the problem is says so the kings of the earth, they set themselves. They kind of take over. They take charge. They think they run the earth. Mankind thinks they're king. And then they counsel together, meaning they get together. And really who they get together against, verse 2, is against the Lord and his anointed one. That phrase anointed one is where we get into Greek. Christ, Christos, anointed king. So this is saying, mankind, they gather together, they sit down, and they start plotting how they are going to do what verse 3 says. Break their bonds and cast away their cords. What this means is I don't want God telling me what to do anymore. It's interesting, true faith, faith as defined by Christ, is utter dependence on the living God. Jesus says in John 5, without me, you can do nothing. It's utter dependence. So when when I really am a true Christian, I am completely dependent on God, his will for my life and his word. The essence of sin is just the opposite. Independence. I don't want him telling me what to do. I don't want anybody telling me what to do. I want to live life my own way. And so what we do is we break bonds that God set up. Some people are like, well, what are bonds? Some people think these words, some scholars say bonds are talking about institutions that he set up, kind of like mar- marital institutions and governmental institutions, that there's a, there's a way to behave underneath these institutions. And other people think the bonds are his commands, specifically his Ten Commandments. He doesn't want us to lie and lust, to commit adultery, place other gods before us, and so we do, though. So we don't listen to them, and we claim independence. We break the bonds of God. And that, right there, is why this world has problems. It's on fire. Billy Joel was right. We didn't start the fire. It's always burning since the world been turning. Ryan started a fire. Actually, if you want to be honest, you office lovers, see, they understand what I'm talking about. I speak their language, see. But what, what this verse is saying, the world's on fire and God wants to put it out. So he comes up with a plan. Look at what it says in verse 4. It says, he who sits on the throne. Well, who is he, first of all? And this is where the tr- idea of Trinity comes in. In this passage, actually, this passage has the Lord and his anointed. And actually in verse 8, Some people think that's the Spirit of God Himself talking. So when it says, He, it's not just one individual, it's three in one. That's why we have the symbol three. Really, these are three circles that intersect, just like on the front of your bulletin, three circles that intersect representing Trinity. Some people say, well, Trinity is one of those fabricated, made-up ideas. You can't find that word in the Bible. No, but you can infer it, it's obvious. Actually, the very first chapter of the Bible, in Genesis, God said, and actually the Hebrew word for God, in that is Elohim, which is a plural word. It says, God said, let us make man in our image. Who is the us? Who is the us that is making man in our image? God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three in one. They are one in essence, one in being, but three persons doesn't make sense, I know, but it's true nonetheless. Remember when Jesus left the earth and He said, I leave you my authority, go to every nation and make disciples and you baptize them in the name, singular, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So He confirmed that belief just by that statement In other places I could show you. But what's happening is this, in verse four, in eternity past the Trinity, God the Father, Son, and Spirit They looked down on the earth, and they did three things. First of all, they saw what was going on, because they see the the people conspiring together against God. They see it, and then it says they laugh. Look at verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. What does that mean? What does it mean God laughed at mankind? Does he just think we're a joke? No. No. It's not that. Oh, let me give you an illustration. When I was in sixth grade, my parents went out and they bought a Sears weight set. Those cement weights. You ever see those cement weights? They're plastic. They're round and they kind of link together and they got this plastic bar that you bench press with. And my brother-in-law, Jim, made me a bench press. So I went down to the basement in sixth grade and I'd start bench pressing. Put 10 pounds on each side. Man. Boom! could do it at least 10 times. I mean, what's funny, when I used to work out in the sixth grade, I thought it would get me bulkier. I got skinnier. It was terrible. But I thought I was strong. Oh, hey, 10 times. I'd come upstairs from the basement. My dad would be sitting at the table eating peanuts. I'd say, Dad, let's arm wrestle. Man, I've been lifting. And he just he started laughing. And I'm, I was getting mad said, Dad, I've been lifting, let's arm wrestle. So my dad spits out a peanut and he goes, all right, put it up there. So he put his arm up there and I put my arm up there and I'm, start going like that. Ah!" My dad goes, all right, when are we gonna begin? Dad, and he starts laughing. (laughs) He didn't mean to laugh, but he just couldn't help it because I thought in my little puny body, I thought I could beat 220 pound man. That is pretty tough. So he laughed and in his laughter, It wasn't mocking me. Well, it kind of was mocking me. (laughs) That's what God does to the earth when we say, I'm not going to listen to what He says. Who is God? Listen, I read this quote by Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt says, man, I don't believe in God because my dad put so much guilt on me growing up, so I don't believe in God. That is so stupid. Just because your dad didn't necessarily tell you the truth, you're not going to believe in somebody? I don't believe in a dentist because every time... Go to Dennis. He says, I have cavities, so I don't believe him. I feel guilty, man. Stupid. We, and so God's like, what, what's wrong with you? It's funny, tonight I'm going to show um, my fil- my, our slides of Israel. And one of the slides of Israel is we went to the city. They have a wall around the Old Jerusalem in Israel. Old Jerusalem has a big wall, and they've got gates, like the Dung Gate, Damascus Gate. But there's one gate at the top of the hill called the Golden Gate. It has like two arches, but if you look at the gate, it's not open because it's, it's actually been cemented with stones, so you can't walk through the gates. And there's these, all these graves in front of the gates, and so we asked, we asked our guide. We said, why, why can't you go through there? Oh, the Ottoman Turks, who are Muslim, they wanted to actually stop the Messiah from coming back into the city. So they, they decided they would brick up the gates so the Messiah couldn't get in and they'd put all of their dead bodies in front which would stop them. So when the Messiah, the one who created the earth with his mouth, comes back, he's not going to be able to go through because you bricked up the little gate for him and he can't get through. And all your dead bodies That's re- so what I wanted to say. Is that that's stupid! And this is saying God laughs at people when we think we can take them on. But this problem we have, this derision, this arrogance is what's causing the world to be on fire. So he not only sees, laughs, but he then says, all right, how do I fix this? Because he's mad. It says in verse 5, he will speak to them in his wrath. Oh man, what is he going to say? He's mad at him, And here's what he says. And this is his solution for man's rage. It's in context. The nation is raging. That means they're furious towards God. God kind of laughs at him, but he comes up with a solution. So what's his solution? Verse 6. And this is where Christmas begins. Verse 6 is where Christmas begins. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. What he's saying is, all right, I'm going to send my king. He'll straighten this world out. And so in verse 7, he makes a decree. I will tell them of the decree. So this is really, and when it comes to Christmas, verse 7 is the role of Father God, of the Father in His role is He sends a decree. He, a decree is this grand pronouncement. It's a proclamation from pre-existing times or before the earth began that they pre-planned times that He is going to make happen on the earth. So a decree is a proclamation of a prophecy that was established in eternity past. And here's what it is. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. What this phrase means, you are my son, this is referring to the second person of the Trinity, the Son, Jesus Christ, the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Begotten means he proceeded from the Father. I don't know how that happened, but the way theologians say it, and you sang it, This morning, whether you probably didn't realize it, but theologians say he's God from God, light from light, true God from true God. So he's the begotten, he's the only Son of the Father, the only one. In reference to this, there's some discussion because this is used in Acts chapter 13, verse 33, where after Jesus rose from the dead, God uses this phrase, or Peter says, uh, Paul says this is referring to Jesus rising from the dead, but what it's referring to is in eternity past, God already knew he's going to set his son up to be the king on Zion. That's what it's talking about. That's his decree. So when we talk about Christmas, Christmas happened because there was war, and he needed to send the king to clean this world up. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 1 because it gives us the details of the decree. In my mind, it's one of the most confusing passages in all of Scripture. So it's kind of hard to follow, actually. But I want to read through it because we're Christians and we say we believe this book and we need to know this book. But you have to work through it. So what I'm going to do... As I'm going to read it, this is the decree of God in specific terms. I'm going to bring out why he sent it, which is his, his motivation. Why is he going to send Jesus? What is the gift? And what's its purpose? Starting in verse 3 of Ephesians 1. Blessed be God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That means we're rich in Christ. In Christ. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoptions as sons through through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. This is a lot of stuff to take. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespass, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, and all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. It's a mouthful, but what he's saying is God has a plan, a purpose, and it was predetermined before the earth was made. This is his decree. It was made out of, this is his eternal motivation, why did he make a decree? Why did he send the Son? In love. That's what the beginning, or the end of verse 4 says. Beginning of verse 5, it says, in love he predestined us for adoptions as sons. Why did he send Jesus? Because he loves us. He loves us, but how does he love us? That's a big question. I to he loves us in two ways. He's gonna tell you specifically why he loves us and then how much he loves us. This explains it. But the first thing I need to ask is when you hear that God loves you, does that just mean he just generally loves us? Because a lot of people will say this, even after they disobey the word of God They sin like crazy, yeah, but God loves me. He loves us. So is that just a general love, kind of this warm love? God just loves. Or does he love us for a specific reason? I believe, according to this, he loves us for two specific reasons. One's not stated in here. But number one, he loves us because we're made in his image. We bear his likeness. It's priceless. Genesis chapter 9 says, you shall not kill a man because he carries the image of God. But if you do kill a man, you should die because that's how precious life is. But the reason that this states that he loves us is because of what we're going to become in him. He doesn't love us in our current state. He loves us for who we're going to become. We have this feeling that God just loves me because he just loves me, but he loves me because he's got something destined for me. Look at verse four. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So before the world was made, he chose us. Why? That we should be holy and blameless. And then he says, in love he predestined us to be his son. So he wants us to be his children, but not just his children, his children that are holy and blameless. We just have this, this what I would say, this fuzzy idea of love that God just loves us because he loves us, but he loves us because he knows what we're going to be. Have you ever had, if you had a kid, let's say you have a kid that spits in your face, punches you in the face, kicks kids at school, steals money from all their friends, And he comes home to you say, man, I love you. I just love you. You do love him, but you won't put up with that. You love him for who you want him to become. You do. God loves us for who he wants us to become. Holy and blameless people in Christ. And this is essential when it comes to the last part. Because you can't have peace if you're not in Christ. I know that sounds like a lot, but we live in this. The reason why I'm making this statement is because you'll hear so many Christians these days who don't listen a word to what God says, but they say, God loves me. Why does he love you? Yes, you are made in his image, but he loves you for what he wants for you. God loves Chris Weeks, not as he is, but who he's going to be in eternity. This makes, when you see me, God cannot wait for you to see me as I'm going to be in eternity. Because it is then that he's really going to get glory. It sounds probably. Why are you making such a big deal about it now? Because I think we don't. We don't make that. We really don't believe that God wants us to be holy and blameless. We just don't believe that. And He does. He wants us to be like Him. It's funny. I was reading Hebrews the other day. Hebrews 12 said, "You know," well, let me take you there. Go there a second. Hebrews chapter 12. Starting in verse 3. Verse 3 of Hebrews chapter 12 says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Okay, so you're his son, and he said, My son... Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be wary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So the question is, according to this, how do you know you're loved by God? You're disciplined. Because he has so much more for you. And we just think he just loves me. But if he loves you, he will want you to be conformed into the image of his son it's such an important part i just let's go back to Ephesians one you need to meditate and and really chew on that so because he loves me he sends me a gift and this gift is a it's so precious you can't you, you just can't put a price tag on it and so go ahead to the next live it's unsurpassed there's nothing better than this gift it's the greatest gift ever given to us and you'll see it time and time again in Ephesians 1. He keeps talking about the Lord Jesus Christ who's blessed us in Christ. He keeps saying, in Christ, predestined us for adoption as son through Christ. 2 verse 6 to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. The gift is himself, Jesus, in the, in the flesh. So the unsurpassed gift is a baby. That's a gift. Why is it so important that Jesus had to come as a baby? There's two reasons. The first is spelled out in verse 7. Verse 7 says the reason Jesus had to come as a baby, the reason God sent him as a baby, is so that we would have redemption through his blood and have our sins forgiven. The reason why you are fury and fury and anger and rage. The reason why a lot of times homes are not any, anything but warfare is because of sin. The reason why there is not peace but alienation from God. It says in Colossians, we are alienated in our minds. We are enemies in our minds from God. Alienated means we are separated. Why? Sin. You will not have peace until you deal with sin. You just won't. And so what God God knows this, so according to verse 7, what He does is He encases His answer in the body of a human, because in a body of a human, it's a perfect substitute for me and you to die on a cross, and a human has blood in it, so it's shed to forgive you. That's why Jesus came on Christmas. Because God wanted to answer the problem of human beings raging. And the only way to answer the problem of human beings raging is to kill his son. That's it. And then this son became a man. He died, rose up from the grave. And did you know right now, and I'm not sure we really believe this, right now he can see everything we do. Everything. And his title is Christ. So he's going to come back as king to then rule over us. So we don't rage anymore. So we will live in a perfect land with his rulership. I'd love it if we could just take this, you know, just kind of rip this ceiling out. And then rip the clouds away. And then keep going up and see him. He is a man right now. A man. That really is alive and what we what i what i don't like about christmas sometimes is we focus so much on things that happened in the past and that's where we stay instead of saying what is he like right now he's alive it's funny when jesus came mary and joseph wondered what they should call him god said this you shall call his name jesus why For he shall save his people from their sins that's really why he's sent. So what is the goal? Why did they send him? Really, the it's verse 10. Verse, and I call it the... Boyd Kaler doesn't believe that's a real word, but it's the penultimate goal. Penultimate means you have an ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is found in verses 11 and 12. Look at verses 11 and 12. In him... We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will. So he's working his decree out. He's working all things out to his decree. So that, verse 12, we who are the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. So that's the ultimate goal, to bring glory to him. The penultimate goal is verse 10. Look at verse 10. The penultimate means it's one step below the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is God's glory. One step below is verse 10. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. So from Psalm 2, God looks on the world and it's raging. It's raging mad. It's on fire. It says, how do I fix this? I'll make a decree. I'm going to send my son. He's going to be the king. He sends his son. His son, first of all, comes to die. And the reason he came to die is because before you will take his rule, you have to have a heart that will accept it. So he's come to win your heart first. That's why the Muslims will never get it right. The Muslims want to go from rule down. They want to impose Sharia law. And if you disagree, they'll cut off your head. Doesn't win anybody's heart. Neither does having the right president win. Did you know, like we get so mad that my party's not winning. Even if we win, if the heart's not changed, it doesn't mean a thing. It really doesn't mean a thing. The only thing that changes humanity is when you go to your neighbor and you go to your brother or you go to somebody you know that doesn't know Christ and you share with them the gospel and say there is a king that's going to come back and he wants your allegiance. And to prove that he wants your allegiance he first died for you. He loves you. But he's coming back and when he comes back if you are not his, you're in trouble. You just are. And then when he comes back, he's going to bring heaven and earth together to unite them. And then you'll have real peace. I was talking to Dave Harrison a couple days ago and he he asked me the question. He said, he said, did you watch the trimming of the the Christmas tree in New York City, the giant tree, and they had I guess they had a special on TV. And I said, no. He goes, well, it opened up and it said they had this children's choir. And the children's choir stood be in front of the tree and they all started singing this song called Peace, I Leave with You, My Friends. And I said, really? They, used to, they sang that song? Because I used to sing that song as a little kid in mass at church. And it goes like this. It goes, peace. I leave with you, my friends. It's really nice. It's kind of like a sound of music lilt to it, you know? And it says, Shallow my peace in all you do. Go now, my brothers, and do the same until I come again. And it talks about having harmony and just smiling at one another and just be at peace. It's kind of like, just share a Coke and a smile. And (laughs) everything will be great. And I used to go to church like that where I wanted to hear nice music. I wanted to feel good. When I left, I just wanted to see the nice, the nice decorations and sing nice songs and be nice. Just be a nice person and everything will turn out all right, as if all of us deep down are good. Deep down, we're good. Deep down, if we just are nice, this world will be a better place. There will be peace. I just want peace. uh, Right after the Paris bombings, Madonna had a concert the day after and just said, We just have to love each other. That's different. We'll be at peace. That's not the problem. The problem is you, in your heart, are at war with the living God. That's the problem. You are raging against God. And the only way to have peace, the only way to have peace with God and your neighbor is you have got to submit yourself to the rule of the king. That's the only way. And the way you do is you admit your need for Christ. You humble yourself and you say, God, I believe that Jesus is the only begotten who was sent to die for my sins and then to rule Over my heart. If that doesn't happen, all this peace stuff's a joke. It's an utter joke. It's a joke that we think we're going to fix. We're going to fix war by taking away guns or even having more guns on both sides. Man, just get more guns and we'll stop slaughters. No, you won't because people are still messed up. And taking away guns won't do a thing at all. Just leave you vulnerable. The only thing that will change anything is when you have Christ in your life and you're willing to tell your friends and neighbors. I was talking to Jared the other day and he said one of the teachers at his school said, "You know, evangelism is no longer for the church. We should we should just kind of encourage those who are already saved. Don't worry about telling other people." I completely disagree. You have got to tell people. You have got to tell people. And I'm not making this, I don't, I don't even care how nice of a presentation. You have got to tell people God is angry with them. Huh? If they don't have Christ, He is furious. That's what Psalm 2 said. He's so furious that if you do not have His Son, He is coming in wrath. It says Ephesians 2 that you are a target of His wrath. But he gave you a way out. He sent his son to die, to take that wrath upon you so you can have your heart fixed. And then once you have your heart fixed, you're a son. And you will want his will. But before that, you're a rebel. I never really heard that growing up. I heard that I just come in here sing, peace I leave with you, my friends, and leave and everything's great. I can trim the tree and go watch a claymation video when Santa Claus comes to town. But the truth is, if I watch a claymation video and I'm going to hell, it's a bad deal. I don't know. I know this isn't too polished. But all I'm saying is consider Psalm 2. Consider that as God's real perspective of the world. And it's terrifying. You want to read something really terrifying? Read Psalm 51 once. Or Psalm 50, I'm sorry. Psalm 50, verse 21. That's bad. So here's what I'm telling you. Are you at peace with God? Ask yourself, are you at peace with God? If the answer is no, Christmas has come for you. The sun is ready and waiting. And repent and believe in him. And turn from your ways. And you'll have peace. Let's pray. Father, we, um, I don't know, God, we, we really need your, your Holy Spirit to just teach us. We, knew, we need to move uh, in Christmas time. We need to move beyond entertainment, and um, we need to really consider the reality of what's swirling around. Help us to see that, God, what happened in San Bernardino is just a sign of what's really going on in people's hearts. Help us, God, if we are not um, believers. Help us to repent and change. Help those of us who are believers to realize what what an amazing gift the Son was that was sent. Help us to share him and not be scared to. Thanks, God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.